I had never visited the academy before deciding to go. I wasn't in a rush to uh, to try it on. If, it, if something's going to be difficult and you know you have to do it, I'd prefer just to do it once. That's former Coast Guard men's basketball player Grant Johnson on why he didn't come up from his home state, Georgia, to visit Coast Guard Academy at any time during the application or acceptance process. Grant was one of the members of the Magnificent Seven recruiting class that we met in Episode 2. Grant wanted to be at a military academy. He was awed when he attended his brother's graduation from Navy. But he wanted to sail his own path. So he went to the Coast Guard, knowing that it could be a challenge. Spoiler alert, Grant now appreciates the experience for what it was. And he's still in the Coast Guard. It's supposed to be hard. It was hard, but it it uh, it prepares you. It makes real life, adult life, easy in a way. Welcome to episode three, the foundation. Let's take stock of where we are as we start the next part of our story. Coming off a three and twenty season in two thousand three two thousand four, head coach Pete Barry and top assistant Bob Bono brought in a large recruiting class with some highly talented players. This episode will focus on the acclimation of that group to a different kind of college experience. And we'll talk about the first two seasons of their four-year run. It's an annual event in New London, Connecticut. Our day, late June, in which several hundred parents from across the country drop off their 17- and 18-year-old sons and daughters for their first day at the United States Coast Guard Academy. It's swap summer. And you get up early in the morning, obviously, and, and basically they're only bringing their, their clothes they have on their back and some, a toothbrush and, and a pair of underwear. So the kids go and get in line, and they're standing in line. And after about five or ten minutes of being in line, all of a sudden you hear this ruckus. Dave Sowers provides the perspective of a Coast Guard parent. And the cadets that are going to be training them, cadre just come kicking the door open and just, they start screaming right away and they come walking out of the, the courtyard there and they're coming out towards the kids and, and they go right up in the line and they march up and they just start letting them have it. They're screaming at them and tell them, keep your eyes forward and don't look down and just on and on. And so pretty much every mother that's standing there, you know, 10, 20 feet from your kid, all the mothers just start bawling. Then half the guys. And I'm just thinking to myself, man, I'm glad this isn't me. That's all I could think. Like, good gosh, what are, what are we getting our kid into? This is Al Sowers. It was a complete shock. I think if you're coming into it blind, there's nothing that you've seen really in your life that would have prepared you for it. It took about a week or two to kind of adapt. My favorite anecdote is a quick one from a future reserve on the basketball team, Adam Radke. My roommate on the first day, when we ran up the stairs and got in our rooms to put our bag, our, like our luggage down, first hour, he said to me, I didn't know they were going to yell at us. Yes, there's a lot of yelling. Swap summer is draining. You'll be tested beyond anything you've experienced before, both physically and mentally. You and I take for granted how we eat, but as a first-year student, you'll square your meals. That means staring straight ahead and bringing the food up to your mouth at a right angle. All your turns around corners will be at right angles. And you will run, and run, and run some more. This is Steve Blum. 
I literally showed up late for Swab Summer. There is a time where you show up, and I showed up 10 minutes late. Steve was the one who nearly didn't go to Coast Guard because of a medical issue. His acceptance was last second, as was his arrival. I'm the guy that shows up late. They're just yelling at me straight from the beginning. I had eight McDonald's for breakfast that morning. I threw it up about three hours later. I know the girl who was my cadre who like had to clean up my throw up. It was in the middle of the floor. It was rough. All of a sudden it was like boot camp and I wasn't really prepared for it. I feel like I had a really rough freshman year because I can't memorize things and memorizing things makes things go a lot smoother. They ask you to memorize all the ranks. They ask you to memorize all the ships. They ask you to memorize the meals. I was not good at that. And I got yelled at a lot for that. It's not unusual to get reading assignments thrust upon you when you start college. But the Coast Guard has its own twist on that. Behold, the running light. A little tiny blue book that has like all the indoctrination. I still have mine. Two by four inch book. Everybody carries it around in there. They're high white socks during the summer because you don't have any pockets on your shorts. And it has all the indoctrination. That was the hardest thing. You learn how to memorize everything in there from the general orders, the 10 general orders, to Semper Paratus for breakfast, lunch, and dinner today and tomorrow. And remember, it's the middle of the summer, so it's a little uncomfortable. There was still no AC, so it was hot. Everybody had box fans in their windows. It's humid in Connecticut. I was leaving the humidity in Georgia, but it's humid in New London, Connecticut in the summer. Everybody lost a lot of weight. For whatever civilians may think of this, there's a reason for the intensity. Again, it's a skill that they're teaching you, one, to be stressed out, which is good. And also, short-term memory, you need to be able to, if you're relieving the watch on boat, you need to be able to know what the course and speed is, what the contacts are on the horizon. If you're receiving information about a search and rescue case, you need to be able to hear it once and remember it because you might not have time to hear it twice. Those are the skills you're learning. So squaring pretty easy. All right, I got to eat like that. I can do that. Memorizing everything in that blue book, that was very hard. And every little detail is important. The very first night of reporting in a day, I meet my new roommate, Samuel Andreessen. We have these perfectly made beds, and he pulls back the covers and gets in. He's like, oh, that was a long day. I'm going to need this rest tonight. And I remember from my brother's stories, I'm like, I don't think we're supposed to sleep under the, sh- under the covers because the bed was perfectly made, which we would learn how to make that perfectly made bed. And I remember telling him, like, I don't think you're supposed to do that. So the first night I laid on top of my sheets, trying not to sweat, preparing for day number two. And then he and I spent like the first two hours of the next day remaking his bed over and over and over. And no fault of his own. I think half the people slept under the, under the covers. There is attrition from Swab Summer. Some people decide, this isn't for me. For those who stick it out, however exhausted they get, they build up their toughness, and they learn the value of team over self. It's all in how you look at the adversity. This is another Coast Guard cadet, Stefan Lewis, whom we'll meet further in Episode 4. The main goal of the Academy is to basically break you down and then form you into what they see as what can be a successful officer in the future. One of the biggest things is it makes you think about others. You're always doing things that not necessarily fit in, but you don't want to let people down. So it, it creates a sense of determination that you want to do your best so that everybody around you can do their best as well. And however tired you think you are, you're not that tired. You can do more. Whatever you used to think hard work is, 
that wasn't, you can do more. That's valuable. And what I would tell any kid going into Swap Summer now is like, it's a game. And once you figure out how to play the game, it, it becomes a much more fun and entertaining summer. After Swab Summer ends, the school year begins. And now it's time for classes. Cadet Justin Fellers will help explain that. Starting at 6 a.m., you have to go through the full regiment of getting your uniform on and going to breakfast. You got class all day. You might have a lab in there as well. The academic rigor is really pretty extensive there. Two members of the Magnificent Seven recruiting class, Craig Johnson and Jeff Prebeck, remember having a lot of self-doubt. It's just really a jarring situation to go from senior in high school, you kind of think you have the world figured out, to where you go up there and it's like everything's a trap door. I always trick myself to say, hey man, you're not going to make it. It's, it's a lie that you're here. Like you don't deserve to be here. You're just going to have to continue. It was almost like, Mark, I was just, I was trying to say, you know what? It's true. If they find out like who you are, like as far as just almost like your brains, you're going to get found out. So you just have to work even harder. And so I would play that game with myself. Right away, we all kind of started bonding as like the freshmen because you're all in the same circumstances as a, a freshman at fourth class at the academy. And so I think you start to form a bond early on that kind of lasts through everything. The classes they're taking, they're pretty tough. I would have taken linear optimization, and I would have taken discrete math. Like the intro to electrical engineering, the statics and uh, engineering design. Nautical science. In your junior year, you go around driving tugboats around the river out back. You're not going to do that anywhere else. Principles of naval architecture. And the best way to describe it was systems engineering. You're at like 18 to 21 credits every semester. It's a lot. That's hard stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. It's, it definitely requires a lot of brain power in the moment. Additionally, cadets were taught the ways of the U.S. military. Once a semester, we'd have to meet with the etiquette staff. And we had a book probably four inches thick of military officer and military etiquette. Anywhere from what to wear, how to go through a receiving line, how your knives and forks and spoons and soup spoons supposed to be set up, where the bread plate goes. At least once a quarter, we would have training on that. And that could range anywhere from a dinner to writing a memorandum or something like that. And they were subject to room inspections. Think about how sloppy and messy you were in your college dorm. At the Coast Guard Academy, your room has to be pristine. Every single shirt has to be folded a single way. Your socks have to be folded a single way. Smile like they you had to make them smile. Like they had to they had to have an upward uh, concave smile on them. And you know, then you had to buff your floors because you had to buff your floor, right? Like there's nowhere in the Coast Guard where you have to fold your shirts a certain way and you have to fold your socks with a smile and you have to buff your floor, but at the academy, you have to do it once a month and you get inspected and you get yelled at. And, you know, there, there's stuff that they do to drive home, like a uh, attention to detail and, and, and put you into certain routines and mindsets. As such, cadet schedules are extremely busy. Their to-do lists are a lot longer than yours. At the academy, you're, the most valuable commodity is time, time and sleep. And they, they kind of go hand in hand. I don't have enough time to sleep. I need more time to sleep. I've got 30 minutes right now. What do I want to do with those 30 minutes? Do I want to study? Do I want to 
do I want to watch a movie? Do I want to watch Nip Tuck or uh, Suits or Las Vegas? With apologies to Ryan Murphy and the folks at NBC, their shows didn't win out often. And I'll tell you what I was pretty good about and where I drew a line in the sand was at, at 10 o'clock, I pretty well went to bed. You, you have to set standards for yourself and then things can compound on you if you don't. And that was one thing that I'm really proud of looking back you know, on my academy time was I didn't get into this spiral where I would be up till 12, 1 o'clock in the morning and then having to get up at 5.30 the following. I, I went to bed at 10. 5.30 wake up every day. Military requirements. Full class loads. Why does it have to be so hard? We went right to the top for that one. Admiral J. Scott Barhoe who was the academy's superintendent at the time. Even though there's students at the Coast Guard Academy, we hire all of our graduates and all of them are expected to go on to be Coast Guard officers. And for those who think being at the Coast Guard Academy is difficult, being an officer in the United States Coast Guard is even more difficult than that. And, and many of them would come back and say, I mean, it's a, it's a challenge. And so those challenges at the Coast Guard Academy prepared them for the challenges of being a a Coast Guard officer, lead others to do very difficult jobs. You describe it as being cold, wet, and tired. There's plenty of opportunities, but it's it's hard, difficult work that's rewarding in the end that makes it all worthwhile. So how do you make a group of frazzled 18 to 21-year-olds feel comfortable for a couple of hours a day so that they can play basketball? Our offices were always open. Head coach Pete Barry and top assistant Bob Bono made it very clear that they were there for their players, and that they had their players' backs. And for those few hours of games or practice, they could feel like normal college students. They were so, so perfect for their time and place at the academy in their different ways. Bono was the toughness. Bono helped make us tough. Barry was our, our, like our junior college psychologist. You lay on the couch and he'd talk to you about everything other than basketball, and that's what we needed. Be stretching, and he'd be talking about I don't know, some. We always thought he was a hippie, and he played into that role. He'd be talking about some current event, and we'd be like, "We don't know." He's like, "You gotta know, Johnson. You gotta be informed. What do you mean you don't know? You're gonna be an officer. You gotta read. Oh, you don't read? Come on." He always had a date to go to. This doesn't happen very much in college. We live vicariously through our sixty-something-year-old coach, his social life. In episode two, Coach Bono talked about learning from a former coach the importance of making your players feel comfortable and happy. Bono and Barry gave the players the room they needed in order to prosper. Guys on the team would always feel comfortable coming down to the office. Always. There's plenty of times when I walked in my office and there was a cadet sleeping on the couch there. And, and it was fine. Or they'd come down and, and do their homework in our office. Or they would they'd come down and watch the TV or watch... You know, after a game, we would have the post-game meal right outside our office. We would have the TV on, so the ESPN game would be on. So the kids would be watching, eating pizza or whatever after the game, being a regular person. They're not having to go through the military side of things. And that's very comforting for them, and it's relaxing for them. And it gives them back to them being a normal, you know, not military-style atmosphere. That's the most important thing, I think. You build that relationship where they feel comfortable in your office. I was on their side from my being basically non-military. The chain of command for me never existed in basketball. If you're a freshman and you're a leader 
and you're better than that first class person, then that's the way it's going to be. You're going to play, not the first class person. So that's where we deviate from my personal philosophy of being a part of Coast Guard. Although you have to cave in from time to time with rules, but rules are only guidelines. I don't have to always enforce guidelines, but I think we were open with each other and with the players. And I think they had a feeling that someone was always going to be with them. Pete Barry clashed with the higher-ups at the academy a good amount. But when I talked to Admiral Barho, the highest of the higher-ups, he went way out of his way to say how much he enjoyed working with Coach Barry. I would tell you what would draw me to him is how much he loved his players and how much he cared about each of them as an individual. In that environment, the older players became very protective of the younger players on the team, filling a big brother role. One who did that was a backup guard who didn't play often, H.B. Baker, who was a co-captain with Dan Shepard. H.B. Baker, when I first showed up, really took me under his wing, felt like that big brother protection showing me the ropes and showing me what to expect. He was looking out for people all the time. Freshman year before the season started, just having a bad day militarily, academically, we did a workout as a team, preseason workout as a team. And then H.B. Baker was going off base for some reason. He said, hey, man, can I pick you up some dinner or anything? And uh, so he brought us back some Subway sandwiches. And I think he brought like the, all the freshmen back some Subway sandwiches. It was a little bit uplifting just to get some outside, something from the outside coming in. Someone taking the time to do something special for me and look out for the freshmen on the team. And uh, that meant a lot to me. And I think at that point, I realized that I really liked all the guys on the basketball team. I'm Howard H.P. Baker, and I was one of the leaders on the 06 men's Coast Guard basketball team. I tried to keep everybody together. I tried to keep kind of the culture and the morale going, drive some of those some of those things we did when we came back on Christmas break going out, going to Mohegan Sun and eat, just gorging ourselves on the buffet. Just some of those things that they seem small, but keep that group cohesion together. So I kind of tried to be that guy. I tried to welcome everybody. And then I tried to push everybody as hard as I possibly could at practice to, to prepare them so that we were prepared for the games. The couple hours that the cadets were practicing or playing a game were way different than any other parts of their day, in a good way. Just how important were sports at the academy? I think they're absolutely essential because some people might think that they cut into your time that you have for other things, you know, which is maybe true, but it gives you more quality time later once you're, once you're revitalized. That was almost just like a release. You know what I mean? It it was like for 22, 23 hours out of the day, man, it's almost like you're in foreign territory because you're just having to work so hard academically. But for that hour or two hours, like I can control that. I know what I can do on the court. I know the skill sets that I can bring. And so that was just a nice release. It was just let your anxiety, your fear go and just play and just have fun. The first game for the new look Coast Guard Bears was against Johnson and Wales University in Providence, Rhode Island. Three of the freshmen, Al Sowers, Grant Johnson and Jeff Prebeck started the first game of the season. They never came out of the starting lineup in their time at the academy. Craig Johnson came off the bench and scored a game-high 17 points. He got a lot of time, maybe a little more than he was conditioned for. I had been sick and 
you know how the games, if the games aren't slowed down with an out of bounds or a free throw, it just keeps going. And I just remember finally calling myself out. And as I walked back to the bench, I just collapsed into the chairs. He took a charge with, with nobody being around. And that was scary. I remember Craig had like a seizure in the middle of the game. He kind of stumbled off the court, stumbled into the last couple seats of the bench and just started like convulsing. They did all the heart tests and had me all connected to all sorts of machines. Turns out nothing was wrong. They think that I was just exhausted and that's what they chalked it up to. And so after that, coach said that he wouldn't leave it for so long. But they were very conservative and I think I sat out maybe three or four games at least before they would let me back in. After losing that first game, the Bears won their next five. They were playing well. They were five and one. Last year's team had gone three and twenty. When they came back after a short Christmas break, it was time for league play. Coast Guard's league, the NUMAC, is a tough basketball league. It has produced national champions and Final Four teams. The fifth best team in the NUMAC is often as good as the best team in a lot of leagues. And to hang in the NUMAC, you have to do what you have to do. Freshman year, we were playing Clark. Probably two minutes left, down two or three. We had fouled their good post player who was going to shoot free throws. I start chirping at him at the line. Just nothing vulgar, nothing crude, just something to distract him. Like, hey, there's a lot of pressure on this shot. Oh, I'm glad I'm not standing there. You don't want to lose to Coast Guard. Oh, this is going to be embarrassing. And then as we're standing there, Dan Shepard tells me, like, knock it off. And he said it in a way that I received it, like, from a junior to a freshman. Like, and that, that means something at the academy. I didn't receive it like a teammate to a teammate. So then we go down. We lose the game. I'm pissed because I wanted to win every game, but wanted to beat Clark conference game. And Dan Shepard is, to his credit, very upset also because he thought that that wasn't a good representation of what a Coast Guard cadet, Coast Guard player, Coast Guardsman should be, not somebody who, who wins by by that type of behavior. And we get into it, not physically, but arguing and out. Probably if you caught me another time, I would have let him win that argument. But right after a loss, I just came from playing really good players at the University of Georgia. What I was saying wouldn't be considered trash talk. It would have been Sunday school talk. Like, Dan, I'll show you trash talk if you want to see trash talk. But he was very upset. We went back and forth. Barry had to separate us. It kind of overshadowed the fact that we had just lost a conference game. But I'd do it again. I think it was important. I said some things like, hey, I don't I don't know if you're okay with losing, but I didn't come here to lose. Like, if you're okay with it, don't be part of the team. Do whatever we need to do to win. Like, we came here to win, right? We're busting our butts. Let's win. Barry had to basically just tell us both to shut up and leave. But the whole team was there, so that kind of set, like, all right, kind of like dividing lines. Are we, are we here just to have a good time and fill our time while we're at the Coast Guard Academy, or do we want to take this seriously and, and win? If you're a gentleman, and if you just say, sorry, yes, yep, go ahead, we're going to lose. We're going to be 3-20. and 20. The big change that happened when my class came in was the shift in mentality, the expectation that we're going to be good and anything less than good is just embarrassing. We're not going to be 3-20. and 20. The Bears men's basketball team was adept. This was a team whose players were a good match for the game plan. I think they fit Coach's system really well, which was kind of exciting to see. And they were honestly all really good players in their own regard. It kind of all in a different way, but they meshed well together. And I, th- I, you know, I think you saw that the longer they played together, 
know, the better that got. But they played together pretty well from the start. All surprisingly, even as freshmen, surprisingly smart basketball players. Like they always had a very high basketball IQ. So not only were they talented, but they were also, they really knew what they were doing out on the court. Two Coast Guard players established themselves as standouts quickly. One was Jeff Prebeck, who averaged 16 points and 10 rebounds per game in his first season. Remember, the coaches had said that they had a kid from Indiana at Naps who would be a great player. Jeff Prebeck lived up to the billing. Jeff honestly believed that he should get every rebound. And anybody that tried to stop him, he got personally offended by. Jeff had a way of making something out of nothing on the court. He was scrappy. He would get the rebounds. And he would battle with guys way bigger than him. You know, like, and that was impressive. Uh, great player. And had a great whereabouts of the hoop and where he was and, and finding the route to the rim. I love rebounding. I didn't think anybody could out-rebound me. That was probably the one thing I was very confident on. No one's going to out-rebound me. For some reason, I could just sense where the ball was going to go. I knew that, like, when Grant shot, like, I knew where to position myself. Same thing with Al. With Craig, if most of his stuff was, like, in the paint, but even then, like, if it was going to go off, like, I knew where on the rim it was going to hit. It was just something that I just quickly pick up on. It was almost, like, inherent that I could easily just track it in my mind to almost just naturally be pulled in one direction. It was more just about positioning. If I could get there like a second, half a second before the, the ball hit the rim, I could just use more of the lower southern region of my body just to kind of at least just establish myself just to push someone out. My favorite rebounds were like when I would get a rebound, offensive rebound, and I would immediately put it back and I'd miss it and I'd get another rebound and I'd like so it'd be like five offensive rebounds with five missed shots in a row and I just hear like Barry and Bono like screaming in the background I'm just like I'm just going for it man I'm working hard for this rebound if I get it I'm gonna try to score Jeff won new Mac rookie of the year Al Sowers was right there with him he emerged as the team's go-to guy coach Bono had promised he would start from day one he started from day one and he led from day one Al was all in on basketball, all in on being our leader. I really have a lot of respect for Al. Al wanted the ball in the closing minutes. Al wanted to kind of direct the offense. Al is super competitive, and I guess that works for him because he's good at a lot of stuff too. Whether it's playing Madden on on, uh, PlayStation, playing cards, he's also very smart. Allen necessarily looked the part of a college basketball player. Mike DeMauro wrote the article about me saying that I like looked more like a banker than a basketball player or whatever. And so when people see me, they're like, you play college basketball? That was one of the key elements to Al's game. Remember in episode two, how 13-year-old Al was beating pro football players in pickup basketball? They underestimated him. If you underestimated Al, you paid the price. He was amazing. He was quick, wasn't very tall, but very quick, very smart, and very kind of deceptive. He could lull you to sleep and then hit a three right in your face. The Bears went 13-11 and 11 overall in 2004-2005. The next year, Craig Johnson stepped into a leading role. As a freshman, Craig felt like he wasn't getting the ball enough. I was used to getting the ball, to having the ball, to feeling like I was integral to, like, the offense and 
Al was not ready to give up the ball. And so like from the get go, we had a bit of a, I, I remember being like, who the hell is this guy? And he needs to learn how to pass it. And he certainly disagreed with that assessment. There was an incident out of practice with Craig one time where he kind of clipped me with a knee on a screen. And so when I ran through the next screen that he set, I went with a forearm a little bit higher than I probably should have. And Craig didn't like that and came screaming across the court and tried to tackle me. Luckily, I heard him coming and kind of bent over. So he just went over top of me. And that was kind of it. Nothing was talked about afterward. We just blew the whistle and the next play started and we just kind of brushed it off. Over time, Al and the other players came to realize just how good Craig was. He led the team in scoring at nearly 20 points per game. I think Craig and I are probably very similar in terms of competitiveness, and that was kind of what drove us on the basketball court. If Craig wasn't six foot four, if he was six foot six or six eight or six ten, like we would have never got to meet Craig because he would have been playing basketball at Oregon and then off to the NBA. Like he was one of the most skilled from the like footwork and hands big men that you would have ever seen. My freshman basketball coach was big into footwork and I think that set a nice foundation moving forward. And he would have us practice the dribble drop, which is like the step towards the center of the key and then a drop step. So to kind of get the defender to shift weight before the drop step. I think that would be the my favorite move and probably the foundation of what I like to do when I get the ball. He was personally competitive i think he he demanded a lot of himself he knew what he was capable of and he wanted to he wanted to do it every day which meant we all needed to pass him the ball every play the great players want the ball every play and craig wanted the ball every play i remember putting a lot of pressure on myself play well i remember it being kind of a stressful experience like the game of basketball i enjoyed some of the competitive aspects of it However, I'm not like Grant who just like loves basketball. And so for me, it is a little bit more work. And like, I have to kind of do a little bit more in my head to get myself ready for play. There was incremental improvement sophomore year. The Bears went 17-9. and They beat the eventual league champion WPI on the road. File that one away. Remember when Grant Johnson said that Coast Guard teaches you that you're never tired? Coast Guard developed something that would come in handy at the end of games. Endurance. It has been all bears in the second half. Who would have thought that? 3.40 to play. Coast Guard up by 13 at 49.36. 25-10 Coast Guard in the second half. Nine on the shot clock. Sowers around the screen. Cost left. Sowers with five to shoot. Takes the foul line jump. It's good! Gives the Coast Guard the lead. Minute three to play. We would use it on the basketball team. Hey, we're not tired. We we know what tired is. We're not tired. We can do this. The Bears had a very good season. They won a playoff game against Clark. They lost in the conference semifinals to MIT and lost to Rhode Island College in overtime in the first round of the ECAC tournament. Kind of the equivalent of a consolation round for Division Three. It was another step forward. Still, Pete Berry didn't like what he saw in that last game. He felt a little bit of a push was needed. We have a chance to win. We lose by two or three. 
and they played horribly. They didn't want to play. That was one of the better emotional locker rooms I've ever been a part of because I got after their, their asses because they didn't want to be there. And that was very upsetting to me. So I'm thinking if this is how they're going to be, what happens if in fact we do win a championship? Maybe that was a learning moment for us. The next year was supposed to be Coast Guard's year. The members of the vaunted freshman class were all juniors. The coaching staff was pushing the right buttons. It was their turn to rise to the top of the new Mac. Not so fast. On the next episode of A Lasting Legacy. If he was a bad player, I wouldn't have cared. But he was good, and we knew he was good. And he was leaving us. So that was frustrating. A Lasting Legacy is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Mark Simon. Special thanks to my listening team and people who provided feedback and advice, the A-team of Paul Alfieri, Neil Amato, and Hunter Piermont, along with Sean Guillory, Karen Given, Kirk Francis, Laura Shankman, Lisa Simon, Josh Durham, Katie Sharp, and Paul Hembakitis, as well as the book Out on a Wire by Jessica Abel, and public radio producer Nancy Updike's writing manifesto. Thanks for listening.